welcome to the Global Enquirer. I'm your host, Nicholas Mortensen. The Global Enquirer is an undergraduate research podcast that takes a look at case studies to see how global trends are affecting real lives. Today, I'm sitting down with Emma Ross, a first-year prospective foreign affairs and Russian major, to discuss Greece's economic crisis and clarify what is very often a very one-dimensional event in news media and public perceptions. So, Emma, to begin, the Greek debt crisis is a very one-dimensional event for most people. You know, the popular story is that, well, Greece's economy was in tethers, and they owed a bunch of money, and now no one talks about it, so it must be fine. Is that actually the case? Is there more to the story? Well, of course, it's more complicated, and there are many more factors than any one article could ever tell you. The more common occurring themes is that Corruption was a large part of daily life in Greece. You know, tax evasion was a huge problem and definitely issues like that contributed to the fall of the Greek economy, but there is more to the story. And the usual narrative is that when Greece adopted the euro, they tied themselves to stronger economies such as that of Germany and France, and it gave them an artificially boosted image in the eyes of the world in front of investors, which in turn made it easier for other countries to decide to give them loans. Now, this is part of the problem, but in my research, I discovered that there was much more to the issue. So I sat down with the expert, Eric Jones, and had the opportunity to interview him to find out more about the issue. So Eric Jones is a professor of European studies and the director of European and Eurasian studies at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. So I sat down with him the other day and had a fantastic discussion with him about the true causes of the Greek debt crisis. Okay. Um, so there's a widespread misperception that being in the euro was bad for Greece. Being in the euro was not bad for Greece. Um, as a matter of fact, you could tell the whole Greek crisis story without Greece being in the euro, and we'd still end up in much the same place. So why don't we, why don't we start by, by, by asking a little bit about why Greece got into the crisis and what any of that has to do with being part of a single currency. Okay. So think about this. Um, When you, when you, when you're a country and you're relatively less technologically developed than your near neighbors and you want to trade with them, um, then what you end up doing is you, you need to get resources for investment so that you can buy their technology and use it in your factories. Right. And, and, and so you need to have some kind of development. And, and then the question becomes, okay, how do you do that? And, and this is where I think most people misunderstand what's going on. Um, most people think Greece went out and borrowed a lot of money, okay? And, and the reason that they think that is because it's obvious that Greece ran very large current account deficits, and it's obvious that a lot of money came into Greece, and so it makes sense, right? Greece must have borrowed all that money. And, it, and when it borrowed all that money, it was supposed to use that money to invest in factories and stuff like that. But, but maybe it didn't invest in factories as much as it should have. Well, actually, if you, if, if you were to ask yourself, you know, if Greece went out and just tried to borrow money, what would happen to the cost of credit for Greece? If you go out and max out your credit card, and then try to borrow even more money, what happens? What ends up happening is that you end up paying higher and higher rates of interest the more money you borrow. But with Greece, what happened was the opposite. Greece paid lower and lower rates of interest the more money that it borrowed. That doesn't make any sense from our conventional wisdom, right? So maybe our conventional wisdom is just fundamentally wrong. Let's think about how countries borrow money, right? 
The way countries borrow money is not that they borrow money at all. The way countries borrow money is that other actors, so people from other countries, banks, insurance funds, stuff like that, they come in and they buy the assets of a country like Greece, right? So the money is still coming in, but as these foreigners come and buy the assets of Greece, the price of those assets goes up. And if you think about the interest rate as being the inverse of the price of a bond, the prices of those bonds were going up and the interest rates were going down. So the way we can explain that Greece was looked like it was borrowing more and more money at ever lower rates of interest is because Greece was never borrowing that money at all. Foreigners were coming in and buying more and more Greek assets at higher and higher prices. Now, <clears throat> as, as foreigners bought Greek assets and paid higher and higher prices, they didn't buy the worst Greek assets. They bought the best Greek assets. And the Greeks who owned those assets originally found themselves with a bunch of money and nothing to do with it. And so they took that money and they bought the assets in their own country that were cheaper. So lower quality assets. And those prices went up as well. So the Greeks made money and the foreigners made money. Now, this all works well because, in fact, if you were to look at the productivity data, Greek productivity increased a lot as this money came in. Why? Because some of the more risky assets that Greeks invested in were plants and firms as they moved up the value chain and did what development is supposed to do, right? So in one sense, that worked out really well. In another sense, it meant that all these Greeks were invested in riskier assets than they ever wanted to be invested in in the first place, but they had to do something with their money. Then fast forward to the crisis. Why does this become a crisis situation? Well, over time, foreigners are buying more and more stuff. So the flows are not that big, but the stock of foreign investment in Greece becomes really large. And that stock is concentrated in the best quality Greek assets, Greek government debt. So what happens if all the foreigners from one day to the next decide they want to sell those Greek assets and get their money back? Now, the foreigners bought the Greek assets. They've accumulated the Greek assets. And when they try to sell all those Greek assets at precisely the same time, the price of those assets collapses and all the money goes out of Greece. That's what happened to Greece in March and April of 2010. And that's why Greece went bankrupt, because the foreigners sold everything that they had accumulated over the previous 10 years. Not everything, but a huge chunk of it. They collapsed the highest quality assets in the Greek economy. They pulled all that money out of Greece and the Greek economy shut down, which broke all the riskier assets as well. So the Greeks lost money, but everybody else also lost money. And, and interestingly enough, if you buy my story, the people who bought the assets in the first place are not the ones who had to suffer. It was the people who sold those assets. So you might say, well, okay, but why did the Greeks sell those assets? And the answer is because at the European level, they agreed to liberalize capital markets. And what liberalization of capital markets means in plain English is that the government is not allowed to prevent private actors from selling their assets to foreigners. And it's not allowed to prevent foreigners from paying above market prices to buy assets from private actors. So in that context, the Greek government was restrained from stopping the foreigners, and it's the foreigners who really should be blamed 
for the crisis that follows, right? So there's the idea that the crisis started because foreign investors bought a lot of bonds, then because of economic issues, they sold them off in mass all at once, which caused that, that economic collapse in Greece. Are there any other ideas or popular perceptions of how that crisis started? So again, there are many factors that influence the beginning of the Greek debt crisis. The bonds are definitely the more mechanical side of things, but also in terms of looking at the Greek culture, there is definitely a more lenient attitude towards paying taxes. There's a more lenient attitude towards collecting taxes, um, applying for loans, and starting to receive pensions earlier on. So these are some causes that when looking at how to correct or make more money to pay off the loans that Greece eventually had to take out, these were some of the first points that Greece had to face to remedy the situation. And what exactly happened during the crisis? What were the consequences? So during the crisis, when there was less money, there was high unemployment rates in Greece. It reached up to 25%, so one in four people did not have a job in Greece. Today, it's more like 20%, which shows improvement, but it's not altogether all much better. Then we see the more severe impact to the average citizen when Greece had to take austerity packages, which are measures taken on by the Greek government to reduce the deficit, which impacted the average citizen more so. We see a higher impact after Greece tries to fix the crisis, but also during the actual crisis. And what do those austerity measures look like? What is an austerity measure exactly? So when Greece is looking to fix their financial situation, they have to receive bailout packages from other institutions such as the IMF or International Monetary Fund and the German banks who did loan a lot of money to Greece. So in order to get these bailout packages, they have to adopt austerity measures, which are taken on by the Greek government to reduce the deficit. Examples of these that Greece would have to implement in their economy would be freezing government salaries, altering the public servant salary and bonuses, raising taxes, which is a main complaint among the Greek people, and reforming pension. Some people argue that these measures only further stunted the economy, however, and that they might not be the best idea in the first place. And people complain that sovereignty of the country is at stake when they have to listen to other institutions in running their government. But why did the German bank, why did these other countries move in to bail out Greece? So other organizations were very closely intertwined with the Greek economy. So when Greece went into trouble, the other countries couldn't just get off scot-free. They had to offer some way to dig Greece out of this hole because they are so closely related. Eric Jones also explains this very well in what the interests of other countries are in helping Greece out of the hole. Okay, so remember I started this story with a bunch of foreigners that came in and bought stuff. Well, the foreigners who had the money to buy all the best quality Greek assets were German banks and French banks, right? So in the initial bailouts, in the May 2010 bailouts that were organized, because originally the bailout fund was just for Greece, and then only belatedly they expanded it to be a bailout fund for everyone. But, but in the original bailout fund just for Greece, if you look at the flow of money, what's happening is the money is going in to allow the Greeks to pay off the bonds that are held by the German and French banks. So in a sense, the Germans are loaning money to the Greeks so that the Greeks can bail out the German and French banks. That's a good thing, right? It's easier politically for the German government to bail out Greece and blame the Greeks than for the German government to bail out its banks yet again, because the German government already bailed out all the banks in 2008 and 2009. And did these bailouts and austerity measures actually work? 
That's a difficult question because we're still looking at current day, what the effects are exactly. Greece just finished their third bailout program two months ago back in August. So we're still seeing how successful Greece has been. They still owe $290 billion, but their place in the world is a lot better than it was back in 2009, 2010. So we've got a lot of context on the economic crisis, but I'm more interested, what are the consequences today? Are there still any kind of enduring social, political, economic consequences of that crisis that happened a few years ago? Well, it's interesting to look at the Greek people's reaction to the austerity measures. So we see that these are largely unpopular. The Greek citizens don't like having to be taxed more, etc., and they feel that the IMF and these other countries are violating their sovereignty by intervening in this way. So what we start to see are protests and graffiti and all sorts of public backlash to the austerity programs. And Eric Jones explains why it would make sense that the public doesn't like these measures. So think about it this way, right? The, the, the Germans weren't giving the money to the Greeks when they bailed out the Greeks. They were lending the money to the Greeks. And so the Greeks had to pay a rate of interest. And as a matter of fact, Germany made a lot of money off of the money that it lent to Greece in the context of this bailout program, right? Now, having said that, and this is also important, um, <clears throat> when they lent the money to the Greeks, they only lent the money to the Greeks on the basis of what we call conditionality. That means conditions. The Greeks had to promise to do certain things so that they could prove themselves worthy of receiving this money. And the people responsible for enforcing Greek politicians in doing those things were the people at the IMF, the European Central Bank, and the European Commission. So it's understandable that the people in Greece would look at their politicians being told what to do by unelected officials at the IMF, the European Central Bank, and the European Commission, and asking themselves, well, wait a minute, why is my government doing something that's hurting me because they're being instructed to do this by somebody else, right? That doesn't seem right. So it's obvious that they would protest against these organizations. The question is that the Greek people were unhappy with these measures. They were unhappy with what they're being put through because of this crisis. Did the Greek people stick around? Was there kind of an economic flight or was there a flight of resources or people because of this? Right. So when the economy starts to turn to shambles, for lack of a better explanation, those who have the means often decide to emigrate out of the country to seek opportunities. And it's not necessarily because they want to or because they have a specific job in mind. It's because there are not opportunities in Greece because of the state of the economy. So in my interview with Eric Jones, he explains how it not only affects the people who are forced to leave, but how it affects the Greek economy of those who don't have the means to leave. So if we just focus on the emigration part, um, you have to understand these people don't want to leave. These people are leaving not because they see better opportunities elsewhere, but because they don't see adequate opportunities at home. And, and that's really bad because it's usually the most skilled people, the most ambitious people, the people who looked as though they were able to contribute most to society and who would have done so, that are the ones that leave in the context of this. And they're the ones that become disillusioned. The other people, unfortunately, don't have the resources to leave. They don't speak the languages. They don't have enough education. They don't have enough savings to be able to finance a new life start in some other country. And, and so what you end up losing is the highest value human capital, right? I'm, I'm trying to phrase that in a way that doesn't make it sound like rich people are worth more than poor people. But, but what I'm trying to say is that the people who stand 
the greatest chance of adding the most to productivity growth and therefore trend growth in the future are precisely those people that leave. And when they leave, that means fewer future tax resources for the Greek state. That means a lower trend growth potential for the Greek economy. Uh, and, and, and so everybody has to learn how to live with less. And that's not a good thing, right? The, the story that we started with was a story where Greek was, Greece was supposed to develop. And now we see a story where Greece is headed in the opposite direction. So there's this consideration of tax revenues that you're losing because of the most industrious or sort of most go-getter for looking people in the country are now leaving to go elsewhere. Are there any other issues with tax collection or sort of revenue collection that's also going to hurt the Greek economy? I think earlier you mentioned corruption being a big issue. Is that still a problem? So they're definitely trying to make reforms in the tax system because tax evasion was such a problem and corruption was such a problem. What the Greek government did actually that kind of represents how much corruption was in the country was they didn't release the real statements of how much deficit they had until 2009. They had been misrepresenting themselves to other countries and the real deficit came out in 2009 of about 15.4% deficit when they had been showing consistently lower numbers up until that point. With people leaving and with, you know, corruption being so bad, has foreign oversight of Greece continued even after the austerity measures and bailouts were completed? Yeah, I think foreign oversight is a large part of the deal when they made to get the bailout packages. They have to comply with making sure that they collect taxes, making sure that people don't get loans that can't always pay them back. So foreign oversight plays a large part in making sure that the austerity measures continue to provide a source of revenue so that Greek can pay back the large debt that they have accumulated. So in essence, you still have foreign capital and foreign institutions controlling Greek policy. Has that led to any negative social and political reactions within Greece? So when foreign governments are intervening or kind of have to have recommendations in place to make sure they get paid back, the backlash among the Greek citizens would sort of be, well, I don't want other countries telling us what to do. So what the average citizen can do at that point is vote. And so what they do with their votes at that point is they just want to send the message, we don't want other countries messing with us. We like our own country. And if that sounds a little bit familiar, that's because it is. It's referring sort of to the movement that's been getting more traction in Europe and even America nowadays is populism. So what people do with their votes is they try to say, we need to put our country first. We don't want other countries intervening with us. And we have some commentary from that from the interview, which I think is extremely enlightening. Yeah, it's a really, that's a really good question. That's what my research is focusing on at the moment. And, and the, the basic line of argument is that a lot of what we're seeing in Europe and calling populism is probably not populism the way scholars of populism use the term. What it is really is it's a bunch of people that are doing an end run around traditional political parties and trying to get to power without abiding by the old rules of the game. And that's something that we've experienced in the United States as well, right? I mean, Donald Trump went into the Republican Party. He didn't play by any of the rules of the game, or he broke as many as he want, as he could, uh, and, and, and yet nevertheless got to the top of that party, changed the way that party functions, and dominated the executive as well, right? Well, we're having the same phenomenon in Europe. Does financial crisis help create the conditions within which that phenomenon is possible? Absolutely. By helping to delegitimate traditional political parties and by making it look as though the old way of doing business is not as effective. But, and this is the part that I would emphasize, 
We've been seeing this kind of activity for decades. It goes back to long before the current financial crisis. And so while the crisis has added fuel to the fire, the fire's been burning for a long time. So you're seeing a rise in populism because of those economic sort of policy issues. You also have Greece being a main pass-through point for a lot of migrants who are trying to get into the rest of Europe, as well as just a big player in the migrant crisis, generally speaking. Has that made the populism problems worse? Are the lack of economic control in the migrant crisis kind of compounding that populism? Or have those two issues been able to remain distinct? Well, from the average Greek citizen's perspective, as more refugees are flooding into Greece because of the instability, if I am a Greek person and I don't have a job and I see that other people are coming into my country, one concern might be that they might take my job. This is complete misconception. One goal of refugees trying to make their way to Europe may be to come via a boat or paying a guide, and it might not be the best quality because they don't have the means to reach the best quality. So what they try to do is they try to come to Greece or Italy because it's more convenient geographically, and they try to make their way to the shores there. The problem is, though, that while Greece's economy is not in the best state, they cannot adequately provide the assistance that the refugees may need. So one case study would be that due to this crisis, the Coast Guard had budget cuts and they couldn't fill their boats with as much gas as they needed. So as a result of that, private citizens had to use their own resources to start going and rescuing refugees whose boats couldn't hold up to the weather. And there's a lot more discussion about this in the interview. I think this is a really excellent question. And there's one thing that we should clear up really quickly. It goes like this. For every refugee or asylum seeker or economic migrant or whatever that crossed into Europe over the past five or six years, there are five or six conflict refugees sitting in Jordan and in Turkey, right, and in Lebanon. And, and so when we talk about these crises and how agonizing it is for Europe to deal with all these refugees, we should always give a moment of thought to those countries in the Middle East that are heroically dealing with many fewer resources, with many times more people that they have to house, feed, and shelter, right? So, so in that sense, the European context needs to be put into, or the European situation needs to be put into context. Um, and what happened in Greece is actually really interesting, but it's part of a larger phenomenon. And the starting point is not 2015, it's 2011. Because in 2011, the dictatorships in North Africa and the Middle East that the Europeans relied upon to keep migrants out of Europe all collapsed. And when they collapsed, some of them collapsed because they were toppled, like, uh, like Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, right? When they collapsed, that opened the possibility for migrants, not just from conflict zones in the Middle East, but also from developing countries in sub-Saharan Africa to cross these former dictatorship-controlled places, get into boats, and sail for Europe. And they started moving immediately. And, and, and what we discovered is that Europe doesn't really know how to respond to that because the rules that Europe abided by, what are called the Dublin regulations, um, the, the Dublin regulations say that the first safe country has to be the one that processes applications for asylum. And that meant that countries like Greece and Italy had to do all the heavy lifting. And, and, and countries like France or Germany 
could sit back and tell the Italians and the Greeks that they should be doing a better job, right? Well, in 2015, what Angela Merkel realized is that Greece could not possibly manage the flow of migrants that were coming across its borders. Just couldn't possibly do it. And so what she said is, we will lift the Dublin regulations and allow people to cross over safe countries and claim asylum directly in Europe. And that's when the whole thing blew up. When countries like Germany had to face the same pressures that countries like Greece had been facing for years already, it suddenly became a European crisis, right? Now, I think the lesson that we should draw from that is not that Greece somehow failed to deal with the migration crisis, but that the rest of the Europe had failed systematically to appreciate the pressures it was allowing to accumulate on frontier countries like Greece and Italy. Uh, and, and allowing those pressures to communicate to accumulate was breaking politics in both of those places. That's why we saw Syriza come to power in Greece, but also why we saw a much more frightening movement called Golden Dawn, which is a, a, a movement that can best, best be described as a fascist movement. Right. Um, but it's also why we've got these this strange populist coalition in Italy. Right. The, the politics has been so heavily influenced by the failure of European integration to deal with this challenge, which is a long running challenge and um, the failure to deal with this challenge that that now we have to figure out, OK, how do we how do we put the genie back in the bottle? And, and the shorter answer is it's really hard. It's really hard because the traditional political parties that used to work so well across European countries are all suffering at the moment. So everything you're seeing here, you have people leaving the country, you know, to seek greener pastures economically. You still have relatively persistent corruption within sort of the Greek economic and fiscal spheres. You still have continuing foreign oversight, which has led many, many Greeks to resent those foreign institutions or resenting that foreign control. And even then with the migrant crisis, it's all just compounding in a way that's not particularly positive for any player involved. I guess my question for the future is that where we've seen with other countries where populism begins to rise and in the UK, uh, in Hungary and other countries, when that populism begins to swing upward, there is increasing discontent with the European Union being a part of that union. And do you think that Greece, as this problem continues, as its populism remains, do you think that Greece might try and consider leaving the European Union as other countries are have or thinking about doing? Right. Well, that's an excellent question, considering that Britain just proved that it's not impossible to leave. In the interview, when I was talking to Professor Jones, he outlined several reasons why it would not make sense at all for Greece to leave the euro. I mean, it ties their economy to several stronger ones. It presents a more unified image to the rest of the world when no country leaves the European Union, that this is a strong system and that investors can have confidence with it. So... We'll, I'll let him talk a little bit more about why it would be a catastrophic idea for any country, even Greece, to leave the euro. What the German government decided was precisely not to kick Greece out. So I just want to make that clear. That, but, but within the German government, and particularly in the German parliament, there were voices that were raised that said maybe we should kick the Greeks out. There are many ways that you can do that. One is to just deny the Greeks the opportunity to refinance their debt or restructure it. If you do that, then at a certain point, the Greeks will have to leave so that they can print their own money in order to keep their economy going. Another thing that you can do is unplug the Greek banks from access to liquidity within the euro system as a whole. That's almost what happened in July of 2015. If they had unplugged the banks, 
then the Greeks would have had to leave. Instead, what the Greeks did is they put a big firewall around their banks, imposing capital controls to try to keep the money inside them. But they were still allowed to get access to liquidity from the rest of the euro system, uh, which is why Greece was allowed to stay in the euro. And I guess the other question from this is, are there any countries that have gone through a similar issue that we can look to as an example, sort of had that similar economic crisis, that similar economic collapse, that after going through austerity measures, going out, uh, going through bailouts, came out without that resentment, without that damage, or managed to recover from the issues that that crisis created? Right. So the purpose of that sort of line of questioning would be to find the underlying causes before any sort of economic crisis. So it would be interesting to take a look at a country that was fundamentally different from Greece that still went through this sort of issue. A country that went through that sort of issue would be Iceland. They had a problem where their three largest banks ran out of money, and so the government had to take over their economy. Britain and Netherlands lost deposits, you know, it was catastrophic. However, the Iceland example did end, and it had a pretty solid conclusion where in 2015 they were able to end the capital controls on their government. But while they were in the crisis, they had similar problems where they had to stop foreign money from leaving, and they did have to get loans from the IMF. Taking a look at the Iceland example, it is also interesting to see that similar sort of Euroscepticism arose, as is in Greece and different parts of Europe at the moment, where in Iceland, a Eurosceptic government arose in 2013 as a result of unpopularity of austerity measures. Further comparison of these case studies can be found in the interview. Well, I think you know the, the most important lesson that we learned comparing Greece to Iceland is that the story of Greece is not a story of the euro, it's a story of financial market integration. And financial market integration is something that takes place not just across those countries that share a common currency, but also across countries that don't share a common currency. Iceland had its own currency, and Iceland had to put on capital controls just like Greece did, just like Cyprus did. But, but for Iceland, it was much harder to pull those capital controls off again. So I think we need to, to pay close attention to that. The Icelandic economy has rebounded, but the Icelandic economy is like a, a nice neighborhood in in, in one of the five boroughs of the, the city of New York. Uh, and, and so in that sense, I don't think we can learn a whole lot from Iceland more generally. I think what we can learn from the U.S. experience in comparing the United States to what happened in the euro area is the fragility of our own domestic financial market integration. We have certain advantages in the U.S. that they don't have in Europe. We have treasury-backed securities, for example. But we can break that simply by imposing a debt ceiling and then put ourselves into a world of hurt. Um, we also have this integrated banking system that's not as dominant in our economy in the United States as the banks are in the economy of Europe, uh, but, but we can break those as well. And as we scale back the resources that were made available during the crisis that we used to stabilize and bail out the banking system, you have to wonder if we're gonna face another financial crisis in the future, at which point we're gonna have to reinvent the wheel all over, right? So. So I think we need to pay attention to the way we're dismantling a lot of the safeguards that were put into place during the crisis period in the United States. We're not going back to business as usual. We're going back to something much more fragile. So during Greece's economic crisis, were there any attempts to sort of speak to the general populace and kind of get their opinions on how these austerity measures should be pursued, what those bailout measures should look like? Did the Greek government kind of confer with its people before it agreed to these bailout conditions? 
So Greece had already accepted two bailout packages before initiating a referendum for the third one. What this basically meant was that the Greek government was asking the people to accept austerity measures in exchange for getting more loans. So they left it up to the people, or they at least asked the people's opinion about if it was okay to adopt certain measures in order to get more money now. The interesting thing about this case study, though, was that even though the people overwhelmingly voted no, we can't handle all of this taxation, we don't like all of these cuts to public spending, the Greek government had to go through with it anyway. And in fact, as the interview will explain, they had to endure worse conditions than the ones that were initially proposed in the referenda. Okay, so you remember, remember when I introduced that idea of conditionality, the conditions that you have to fulfill? So what, what the referendum that was called in July of 2015 was a referendum called by Alexis Tsipras, the prime minister of Greece, uh, to ask the Greek people whether they were willing to accept the conditions on the third bailout package that were being offered by international creditors. And what the people said was, we don't accept those conditions. And so they didn't accept those conditions. In the end, the government actually had to negotiate more stringent conditions, even worse conditions, in order to get access to the financing. The Greek people did not vote, no, we don't want financing from abroad. And they did not vote, no, we want to leave the euro. They said, we want to stay in the euro. We want financing from abroad. We just don't want to do what they say to get the financing. And so in the end, they didn't have to do what was being offered Initially, they had to do something much harder. And, and I think what that tells us is that referendums are really bad decision-making instruments in those situations. So I guess the retort is, why should I care? This is a European affair of some smaller economy. Why would anybody in the United States or really anywhere else care about what's happening in Greece or what's happening in Greece's economy? Well, I think that question shows an even more scary trend that's happening nationally is starting to care less about what's happening internationally and starting to care more about what's happening domestically. But this this is a completely terrible way to look at it. Everything's interconnected. We live in a global age. We live in a global society. I mean, specifically with the United States, we can give you several impacts that something happening abroad affects us domestically. And even though our banks didn't have as much cause to be concerned as somewhere like Germany or France, I feel like everything ties back eventually. And you can see more specific examples in this clip. I, I would say there are, there are three different impacts that we would look at. I mean, most American financial institutions and, and asset portfolio managers are not heavily exposed to Greece in, in a kind of a systemic way. So we're not looking at it like the German government must have looked at their own bank exposure in 2010. But there are a lot of asset portfolio managers that are actively trading in Greek government instruments, and many of them who've been following the advice of, of the political risk outfits that have been following this very closely um, have, have made really good trades on the back of that and made a lot of money. So I think from, from an American perspective, paradoxically, if you had faith in the European project and you had faith in the ability of Greece to stay in that project, then, then you were richly rewarded. I think that's the first thing. The second thing that we learned is that, that the European project, no matter how much faith we have in it, is a lot more uneven than we expected. And so I think although people have made money by investing in Greece, a lot of asset portfolio managers have begun to reposition themselves on the euro area as a whole and to lower their exposure uh, in, in, in certain respects. And, and so in that sense, I think that the portfolio diversification that we used to have 
is is not as rich uh, anymore today because of the way that people are are reasserting what we call home bias. Um, I think that's a bad thing. I think the transatlantic economy is a really important thing for us to invest in. But I can understand the the, the concern that people have, and, and I imagine that concern is only increasing as they look at the situation in Italy. And this is the third point. I think Americans should be concerned because the Greek crisis was allowed to extend so long and so many opportunities for really bad mistakes arose and, and it could have ended really horrifically. If Greece had left the euro, I think the impact on European financial markets would have been very bad. Um, unfortunately, a lot of political actors in Europe have looked at the Greek situation and learned the lesson that if you're going to be confronted by the European Commission and the European Central Bank, um, then you have to push back when you have a period of significant strength. Um, and, and Italy right now is pushing back very hard, much earlier than Greece did. And that confrontational episode creates a whole new set of opportunities for mistakes to be made. And I think we should be very worried that those mistakes will rebound against the U.S. economy uh, in a significant manner if they if they happen. I mean, you know, obviously we can we can always hope that they won't make any big mistakes. But uh, but but that's sort of like hope against experience. I think mistakes will be made and we just have to hope that that we can figure out how to react to them in a timely manner. So even just kind of going into the future, what can we expect from this and kind of what can we expect going forward? Well, Greece is not exactly where it was before the crisis began. I feel like they've made significant progress digging themselves out of the hole. The more lasting effects, though, that may be seen from the crisis that can't be solved by any bailout package or austerity measure is that the, the morale among the people and how they may have trended more towards more extreme political parties is a cry against measures that they don't like. So this may be a cause of why we're seeing a rise in populism. Greece does remain economically fragile but and susceptible to crisis, but they definitely are not as poor off as they were a year ago, two years ago, etc. I think there are three things that you would want to say when you look at Greece. One is the, the sort of normalization of Cyprus and Syriza in the period after 2015. Although we describe this as a populist party, it actually has begun to play a much more constructive, normalized role, and it's lost popularity as it's become less extreme. Um, but, but, but the accomplishments that they've been able to negotiate are significant, like the name change in northern Macedonia, for example. So I think that would be one thing that we would want to look at. Another thing that we would want to look at is the, the, the normalization of Greek politics, right? So it's not as though the Greeks are throwing all their support to other extremes. Cyprus and Syriza are losing some of their support, but New Democracy, which is one of the old traditional political parties, is rising up to take its place. I think that's interesting because it shows a level of resilience that we should pay attention to. It's a uh, kind of a hopeful sign, right? Um, but, but, and this is the third thing, uh, I think we have to be very attentive to the fact that this banking union I alluded to earlier has not been completed and that the Greek economy remains incredibly fragile. And if there is another financial crisis in Europe, I think that Greek economy could suffer significantly. Uh, and so a lot of the progress that has been made, the normalization of Syriza and the normalization of politics more generally, could, could easily be thrown back into reverse. So while it looks as though Greece is headed in the right direction, I think we have to be very attentive 
that this could change and very supportive in the case that the Greeks get into trouble. That's all we have for today. As always, thank you for listening to the Global Inquirer. And thank you to Emma Ross for coming on. And thank you to Professor Eric Jones for sharing his knowledge in this episode. And as always, follow us on SoundCloud and like us on Facebook to hear more Global Inquirer. And be sure to join us next week. Thank you so much.